This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. We were sinking, somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean. I sat in the hull of the boat by myself and thought about my life. What had I accomplished so far? What would my family be thinking about right now? Were they worried about me? Why didn't I have anyone to comfort me, just as my life was perhaps coming to an end? I was just 16 years old. Every life is a journey. But some New Zealanders have had extraordinary journeys to get here. I'm Mehdi Azimi. I'm a Kiwi Afghani refugee. You may know me as one of the Temple Boys. Getting here. Migration journeys to New Zealand. I walk among the tall trees, deep in thought. My heart beats fast and my skin feels cold. How can I tell my parents what I have decided? It's time for me to leave. It's no longer safe for someone like me to stay here in Afghanistan. I must tell my father tonight. The thought of it makes me shudder. Night falls. It's pitch black. I sit outside the house in the dark, counting the stars. Occasionally, I hear jackals call in the distance. At dinner, my family sits around a white, tablecloth laid out on the floor. We usually don't speak as we eat, scooping a delicious kurti with our fingers. I had practiced what I was going to say in my mind hundred times. Now was the time to say it for the last time. I can hear my heartbeats. Dad, I say. He looks up at me. I've been thinking a lot. And I know a few people that they are leaving here for good. I've been thinking of going too. He looks surprised. He says, what do you want to do, my son? My voice croaks a little. I finally say it. I need to leave the country. His eyes fill with tears. For a while, he says nothing. I could almost see his heartbreak. I'm very sorry, Father. He, he holds his knees close to his chest, deep in thought. He then says, we will talk tomorrow. We did talk about it. We talked for an entire week. My whole family, even my uncles and aunts, were in shock when they heard the news. Mary was leaving Afghanistan. But they understood that my life was in danger every day. It was the year 2000 and I was supposed to be going to school at the time. But life in the central region of Afghanistan was very dangerous and volatile. The Taliban's extremist views made life really scary for most of us, especially the Hazaras, my people. There were public executions, amputations for thieves, and torturing of many people that I knew. 
We often heard about the massacres. They would take hostages from villages on their way to other destinations, then dump them over the cliffs or valleys. They, they would then tip dirt and rock over them, burying them alive. I also heard that the Taliban would sometimes crumb a hundred people in a dump truck, drive along a road at a hundred kilometers an hour, then tip the trailer up so that they were forced to fall out. You can only imagine the bloodshed the Taliban caused. I was slightly taller than most Hazara boys my age, so my head stood out in a crowd, making me more visible and targeted by the Taliban. Young males that looked strong were seen as a potential threat that might be able to fight against them one day. So, when the Taliban would parade into my village, the older boys would always hide. The soldiers would come and sort of inspect the people, scanning the villages as if looking for someone, and wave their big machine guns around to intimidate us. Then they would noisily head off again. Lots of young people in my village would leave quietly, never to return. Even their families sometimes didn't know what happened to them. But a boy of 15 is regarded as a man in Afghanistan. I needed to make my own way, away from that place, away from my village, my people and my family. I had no future in Afghanistan. More importantly, I had no safety. So I felt as if the choice had almost been made for me. I had to leave. I left early in the morning. My family was around me and everybody was crying. Mother was beside herself. She was barely able to say goodbye. The last person to say goodbye was my father. He said, My son, I will never see you again. They didn't hear from me for nearly two more years. There were six or seven of us, men in their 40s and 50s, who were making the dangerous journey too. I was by far the youngest, a tall boy imagining himself as a grown man. One of my friends was going too, he was 19 at the time. Agents, people smugglers, worked at the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. We found one who arranged to take us across the border to Quetta, a town where we would make arrangements for the longer journey to Indonesia. As we crossed through several checkpoints along the Afghani border, the driver knew all the guards along the way and gave them money to let us pass. As we drove, I was so nervous. My mouth was dry, my heart beat so loud, I thought the men sitting beside me might hear it. Checkpoint after checkpoint, but finally quitter. We stayed there for a month, Engaging an agent that was supposed to be one of the best at getting other illegal migrants safely to Australia via Indonesia. We paid him thousands of US dollars each to make all the necessary arrangements for us at every step of the way. However, there was no guarantee we would make it to Australia alive. 
It was up to us, he said. We may get shot at, the car might crash during a police chase, or we could be stopped by thieves and killed. Anything could happen to us, but if we wanted to try to get to Australia, we had no choice but to pay the money and hope for the best. Illegal documents were made for each of us. We headed to Karachi, then Lahore. The weather was so hot compared to Afghanistan, and the food was too. We were used to Middle Eastern spices, but the heat and the food in Karachi made it almost impossible for us to eat. It seemed like half of it was made of chili. Karachi is a big, noisy city with millions of residents. Sirens and cars, honking were constant hum in the background at all hours of the day and night. Like the spicy food, I eventually got used to it. One day, I lie in a little room in my bed in a crowded hostel, listening to the sounds of Karachi. For several days, I had a hot fever, so I just laid there, half asleep and restless. Suddenly, I could hear the excited voice of my friend in the room next to me, and I wondered what happened. Then he burst into my room and shouted, Midi, we're leaving in the next few days. I couldn't believe it. After a month of waiting, it was finally time to fly out of Pakistan. But I was really sick. It all seemed sort of surreal that I would be going to the airport and getting on a plane. It would be my first time flying and I was using illegal documents to leave the country. That strange mix of worry, excitement and fear set in. It was a mixture that I would feel many times over in my long journey to New Zealand. I started to feel a little better from my illness when, a few days later, some strange guy knocked on my door and said, Let's go people, hurry! Thank goodness I had taken a shower and packed my bag already. As we drove to the airport, the agent's worker gave us very specific instructions about where to go, what to do and who to meet. There were about 15 of us at this stage. Most of the men from near my village plus a few others that I hadn't met before. I couldn't take my eyes off of what I saw at the airport. It was modern and clean and there were so many signs and fancy looking people. I felt like I was in a different world. At the immigration control, there was only one line our group was supposed to use. The officer had been paid off by our agents, so we had to make sure we didn't use the wrong line. As I stood there, legs shaking, mouth dry, I felt cold, yet I was so sweating. I stood looking straight in front of me and imagined that I was invisible, that no one could see what I was doing. I blocked out the noises of the airport and everything went quiet in my mind. It was like I was in my own safe bubble, away from all danger. The officer flicked his index finger at me, signaling me to come up to the desk. He says, passport. I slide it onto the counter. He looks at the picture in my passport, then up at my face. Sure, he could hear my heart thumping wildly in my chest. He stares at me seriously for a long time, 
I wasn't sure if he was trying to scare me or just pretending to do his job carefully so that the other officers don't get suspicious of him. We had been told that if other officers were watching him, he would reject our passports in order to save his job. At long last, he looked down for a moment, then he stamped my passport and nodded his head. I had had hoped that my legs could carry me quickly away to the boarding area, but, but they were heavy and slow as I joined the others. All of my friends had gotten through immigration with false documents too. We tried to act normal on the outside, but we were all ecstatic about getting through. I thought our agents must have paid the officer a huge amount of money. I stepped onto the plane for the first time ever. I found my seat by the window and clicked the safety belt on. I could feel my heart slow down a little and my fear slowly changing to happiness. The plane started moving. I prayed to Allah over and over until I could feel the wheels lift off the ground. When I was a boy, my friends and I had looked up at the sky above us and watched planes passing high overhead. They looked so tiny from down there. We wondered how big are planes up close? Who was inside them? Why was there so much smoke? Where were they going? As I looked outside the plane window, the ground raced away below me. I couldn't remember ever feeling so happy in my entire 15 years of life. There are many times in this story when I want to tell you so much more. In my difficult journey to New Zealand, there were so many challenges and moments of uncertainties. Moments when I was certain that I would not ever make it, or that I would die, or be sent to prison. So, this is not my complete story. This is only a small part of it. The plane landed in Jakarta, Indonesia. After an 18-hour layover in Singapore, where we had to almost hide from the airport police, we hadn't slept for nearly 30 hours. We were completely exhausted, both physically and mentally. We found ourselves in an old villa in a town called Chepanas, Indonesia. It was about half a day's drive from Jakarta airport. It was here that we were instructed to wait for arrangements to be made to our passage to Australia. The agents' workers gave us no idea how long it would be until we were ready to go by sea, but we thought it could be a few weeks. Shortly after our arrival at the house, I became ill again. This time, my fever got much higher and I couldn't eat or drink properly. The men in my group became concerned about me, but we couldn't seek medical care because we were illegally there and we didn't want to draw any attention to ourselves by the local police. I lay in my sweaty bed in Chepanas and just prayed that the fever would go away. I was miserable and not getting any better. Finally, after several days of not eating or drinking anything, a young man that I didn't even know came into my room and said that he thought I was going to die if I didn't get help. He had decided he would carry me to the village 
to get some medicine. It seemed in my favor as if he were an angel that had come to take me to Jannah, to heaven. I was too lifeless to refuse. So he picked me up and laid me across his back and shoulders and started walking. The villa was on a steep hill, not accessible by any vehicles. The man, and to this day, I still do not know his name, was taller than me, but very skinny. I could feel him struggle and breathe under my weight. I felt sorry for him, working so hard. I slipped in and out of consciousness as he walked on and on. In the village, there was no doctor that he could take me to, but he talked to the pharmacist and he bought me some medicine which was supposed to lower my fever. We left the village quietly and headed back up the hill, the young man still carrying me. As he climbed further up, he grew too tired and weak to carry me. I couldn't walk either, and I was in so much pain in my head and my body. We started arguing because we really didn't know what to do, illegally hiding in Indonesia and too young and inexperienced to know what was happening to me. Now, I'm a doctor of chiropractic in New Zealand, so I've learned a lot about bodies and health since this happened to me almost 20 years ago. I'm pretty sure my illness back then was malaria, that I had been bitten by an infected mosquito when we were first in Pakistan. That's why I was sick in Karachi as we waited for news to fly to Indonesia. As I lay exhausted on the hillside and fought with this strange yet kind man about carrying me up the hill, I shouted at him to leave me there, to let me die. What would it matter anyway? But he didn't. He rested for a bit, picked me back up, and step by step, gasp after gasp, got me back up the hill to my bed, where I lay for two more months until I was better. I would like to meet this man one day. He was just like me, young, running away from a violent and dangerous place, scared and excited about his future at the same time. But the unique kindness in his heart touched me so deeply. Even the men from my village, who I was traveling with, didn't want to try to help me because they worried it would put all of us at risk. Brother, if you're out there, I would like to meet you one day. We waited for a signal from our agent that a boat was ready to take us to Australia. But the months passed by with no news. All of the men at our villa in Chepanas had a job to do. Cooking, shopping and cleaning. My job was learning to bake flat bread using the local ingredients sold at the market. I had started learning the Indonesian language by then. So visited several little shops that made bread to learn how to do it. My first try was a disaster. But I got a little better day by day and soon was making traditional bread called nan khamir, almost as good as my mum used to. Sometimes other illegal Afghanis would come to our villa and ask for my bread. Hey, I thought, I'm getting quite good at this. Years later, when I finally made it to New Zealand, 
I worked as a professional baker and chef for four years to support myself. Looking back, these months of rather reluctant bread making probably paid off in the end. One day, the agent came to our villa and told us that we were leaving early next morning. That old emotional mix of fear, excitement and worry came rushing back. It was a long drive to Surabaya city in a hot bus. When we arrived at the port, we saw that our boat was a big cruise liner, and that was quite luxurious, exciting. But as we waited to be called to board, two other buses lined up behind ours, also filled with illegals. This alerted the police and officials of what was going on. We'd been caught even before getting on the boat. The police hold about half of our group to detention centres. My passage to Australia, that day at least, was called off. I was furious and sad as we drove back to Chippenas. Although we hadn't been caught by the police, it had felt like a very long time waiting for our opportunity to leave Indonesia at last, only to be scuppered by too many people trying to do the same thing. Months passed, more waiting, more bread, more sadness. Attempt number two. We were told we would leave that night at 11pm. It was a very dark night with no moon. I was feeling scared again. Maybe the other men in my group were too. They were quiet, calm and not talking to each other. This time, the bus drove us somewhere to a remote part of the Indonesian coastline. We arrived just before dawn. We get off the bus, but there is no boat inside. We stand in a single line, one after the other, like soldiers. As we get closer to the beach, I see lots of other people waiting there too. Men, women, children, old men, teenagers. Then... We see a little boat about 50 meters out to sea. They tell us to walk out to it. Families and the elderly go first. As a single male, I'm at the end of the line. The water is freezing. I put my small back on my head and walk out to the boat. As I approach, I wonder how all these people could possibly fit onto such a small boat. The waves crash on the side of the boat and I can only imagine how hard it is for women and older people to climb up. People behind me push me and tell me to hurry up. We have to leave before it turns light. Once I lift myself up to the deck, I can't see anywhere to sit or even stand. So I push my way to the stairs and at the bottom, find a tiny space and sit down. It's very dark down there and it sounds as if Hundreds of people are in the boat. Everyone is praying as the boat starts to move. Hours later, it starts to get lights outside. People say that the boat doesn't seem to be traveling very far from where we started. The boat is really heavy. The noise of the engine is irritating. My legs are numb from sitting in the same position and my tummy is growling. 
but I don't want to open my bag to get a little bit of food that I had brought because people might steal it. I don't talk to anybody, we just want to keep going. Most of the people crammed on the boat were from Afghanistan, with a few others from Iran, Pakistan and Iraq. Because we were all living on top of each other, with no privacy or comforts, people started bickering and fighting for space. When it got physical, the little boat would sway dangerously from side to side. When this happened, the captain had no choice but to stop the boat until everyone was seated again. Once we started moving again, the fighting would again erupt. This behavior slowed down our journey a lot. After three horrible days and nights, the boat ran out of petrol. We had been traveling south along the Indonesian coastlines and could still see the shore. That meant that we could in turn be seen by police. They must have been observing the boat because once they realized we were no longer moving, they came and took us back to land to a detention center surrounded by a fence. But security was not tight in Indonesia. They are a poor country and didn't have the resources to properly detain everyone. One by one, day after day, everyone escaped. I ran away, found a bus and ended up bribing officials and bus drivers at every checkpoint to finally make my way back to Chepanas. Remember how I said earlier that my journey to New Zealand was a long one? Well, let's just say that as a 15-year-old Afghani boy, I had a very complicated time getting here. There were so many more attempts. There were six, actually. Each one held their own special problems. Before we started to leave the shore, the boat capsized. People started crying, and fell down, and shouting. sparked fire. Within seconds, we started seeing the flames uh, at the back of the boat. On this attempt number four, and a few people from one side and a few people from the other side started yelling and swearing, and they started the fight. I think we ran out of petrol this time. These life jackets was only approximately 50-60 meters from the shore, so some of us could swim. Number five, I think number we were, five, uh, rescued by, uh, by Indonesian officials. So they took us to this small island, very small island, and uh, in the island... The boat started rocking side to side, and the inexperienced captain didn't know what to do. Attempt number six. People were. And so finally we were taken back to the main island, and we had to start all over again. Why am I so unlucky? Will I ever leave this place? What have I done wrong in my life? Maybe I should have stayed in my village in Afghanistan. Or, would I be dead by now if I had? I was just 16 years old. We were all so frustrated and getting tired. It had been nine long months of trying to leave, five failed journeys, and too many hours of hunger, fear, and pain to count. 
I told myself that the next time I'm sent back to Indonesia, I will not return. I would either return to Afghanistan or go somewhere else. I was sick of going forwards and backwards. Every attempt at leaving was mental and physical trauma. I was out of money, always hungry and tired to the bones. It was the 13th day of the moon. I've heard that the sea usually gets rough on the 15th day. I don't know if it was always true, but as we set out on our small boat, the ocean was wild that day. We were heading as we had always tried to to Christmas Island, a tiny island 350 kilometers south of Indonesia, but within the legal territory of Australia. Here, people could claim asylum under international law. For the past 15 years, many people had entered Australia through this route. Palapa was a 20-meter fishing boat. Over 400 people were crammed on board. There were no chairs or places to rest. It wasn't designed for people and, like the other boats I'd been on in Indonesia, was not very seaworthy. Palapa moved heavily in the water, as if struggling from the very start. Waves washed us on the deck every few seconds, making my eyes burn from the salt water. We slept lying side by side, still getting sprayed by the sea all through the night. Everyone was grumpy and scared. On the second day, my eyes burned so much that I could no longer feel them. They just went numb. The aching engine was overloaded and eventually stopped working altogether. The waves were so big and kept pounding us on the deck. A couple of passengers said there were mechanics back home, so they went down to the engine room and started working on it. I don't know why, but they'd loosened bolts that held the engine in place. When another violent wave rocked the boat suddenly, the engine jumped off its brackets and fell, visibly cracking the floor of the boat. One of the guys that tried to repair the engine on Palapa is now a friend of mine in Christchurch. I asked Ahmed Shafi'i to tell me what happened when they went to look at the engine that day. Because the gearbox was broken and then the big piece of timber, you know, under the gearbox was broken. And then I told them we can take the gearbox off. And then because, you know, there was only, you know, we tried to, you know, to do something. And, uh, you know, they said, okay, we tried to lose, you know, the, the gearbox to take it off. And the gearbox very, very big and heavy, and then just coming down in this little, oh, I said, we said, no, we cannot do it. We cannot control it. Because if, you know, this gearbox going down, maybe, you know, if you die one hour after, we will die, you know, straight. one hour before straight away, because the water get in. Yeah. And then we come back to the captain, we said, no, we cannot fix it. He said, okay, just go and sit somewhere. We will die tonight. Suddenly, 
everyone's mood changed from being grumpy and miserable to weeping with grief. I looked around me at the people on the deck of the boat. So many disparate, suffering people. We keep seeing the same people who, like me, were trying to leave Indonesia illegally. Over our many attempts, we sort of recognized each other, and I even got to know some of them. The seven men that I had left my village with almost an entire year ago now were all on the boat with me. We had come so far together through so much stress and pain, but now it looked like it could all end. We were far out to sea in a sinking boat with little hope of rescue. I was ready to die. I believe in destiny. If it was my time, there is no point in crying. So I prayed. I prayed for Allah for forgiveness, for hope, and for a second chance in life. A man who sat beside me on the deck turned to me and started crying. Though I was just a kid and he was 20 years older than me, he opened up to me about everything in his life his fears, his joys, his mistakes, and about his family. He talked and talked for more than an hour. Then he said, I wish I was single like you. I have three children and a wife. Who's going to look after them when I die? I wish I could tell you his whole story. He'd had an amazing life. I know he was a good man. There are so many stories like that, of brave people, good people, broken by the harshness of their journeys, but feeling the deepest of urges to survive. They were all just normal people, like me, wanting something more out of life than their countries could give them. The waves got bigger and everyone continued to weep. No engine, a leaking boat, and being tossed through the wild ocean with no control. At one stage, we found broken pieces of wood and took turns trying to paddle. But we weren't going anywhere. Only the currents and waves were moving us. Hour by hour, the wind got stronger and the waves more violent. I would watch huge waves coming from the distance telling myself that this next one would be the one that would probably kill us all. But then the boat would be sucked down into a deep valley then pushed high to the crest of the wave. It would pass and we would pray again. At one stage I sat in a corner of a hull of the boat by myself just thinking about my life. What had I accomplished so far? What would my family be thinking about right now? Were they worried about me? Why didn't I have anyone to comfort me, just as my life was perhaps coming to an end? Why wasn't I A small plane passed overhead. A rescue plane? 
We waved our hands and clothes and wrote SOS on the deck. But it kept a straight course on the sky and disappeared over the horizon. We continued to bail out water in the bottom of the boat, tried to paddle and just survive the monstrous waves that never stopped scaring us. Later on, we saw that small plane again, but this time it was much lower in the sky. Maybe the people inside could send help for us. We waved and tried everything to get their attention. It was 26 August 2001. That afternoon, we saw a big container ship coming directly towards us. Could they see us? We started feeling a little bit of hope. As the shape drew closer and got larger and larger, I began to feel lighter and happier. With each minute, it became clear that they were heading our way. The stress just fell off me. I even forgot about my burning eyes for a few joyful moments. The freighter was huge, dwarfing our overcrowded boat that was bobbing up and down in the waves. But then, it suddenly slowed down and turned away from us. Everyone started shouting and crying, they are not going to save us, and they are too scared to help. But a few minutes later, with the ship's stern to our boat, it started backing up. My heart beat loudly. Another massive wave tipped the palapa. The cargo ship came closer and closer. People start to cry again, but they are not grieving. They are happy tears. They are going to rescue us, they say. As the ship comes closer, I see writing on its hull, a Norwegian cargo ship. It's called MV Tampa. The crew of the Tampa placed a long, foldable step between the stairs in the hull of the ship and our small fishing vessel. There were no handrails or barriers to stop people from falling off. As the boat bobbed up and down, we had to calculate exactly the right moment to step onto the plank. Four Tampa crew members wearing wetsuits stood at the alert, ready to dive off if anyone fell. The wind and the frightening waves knocked us around and we waited on the palapa. Sometimes the boat crashed into the side of the ship. We waited for people to nervously cross the narrow stairs, one by one. Over a loudspeaker, the captain of the timber told us not to panic, that everyone would be rescued. He said to leave all belongings behind as we crossed into his ship. No bags, no food, nothing to hinder our walk across those stairs. Someone fell into the sea and everyone started shouting. One of the temple divers jumped in and somehow dragged the person to safety in those swelling seas. About an hour later, it happened again. Those Norwegian rescuers sure were good swimmers. I watched all of this from the palapa, waiting for my turn to 
cross onto the ship. There were 437 people rescued that day, and I must have been in the last 20 to go. As I waited, I went down below the deck to get out of the sun for a while. The hull was full of water. Bags, clothes, and even dirty wads of cash were floating around. I looked around for a while, thinking about how these possessions and money had once been so protected by us, and now, in the end, these items meant very little. I just stayed there looking at all these little floating things as the water level inched higher and higher. When I returned to the deck, it was nearly my turn to walk the narrow stairs onto the temper. I was careful, getting my timing right as I stepped onto the stairs. When I stepped onto the ship, I didn't look back at the palapa. There was a weird kind of fresh energy inside me. I walked up the stairs to the deck of the temper. People were lining up to pray, shoulder to shoulder, facing Mecca in unity with hundreds of millions of other Muslims in that moment. The sun was setting. The ship started to move. Some people looked back at the palapa and said that it was almost all underwater now. A short while later, it had fully disappeared into the depth of the sea. I never looked back at that boat, not once. Captain Arne Renan's voice was strong and kind. He told us in English not to worry, that we were safe now. He said that we needed to move quickly to get away from a powerful storm that had been brewing for days. I guess those enormous waves we had been frightened of were, in fact, out of the ordinary. It turned dark and very windy. Cold rain poured down on us as we sat huddled on the deck of the container ship. There was nothing to sit on or cover us up. The storm grew stronger. I watched the journey of the waves. I could see them approaching us, then crashing against the side of the ship, forcing water to rise 20 meters above us. Then the water would stop in the air for a brief moment before smashing down on us below. The water felt like cold hands slapping me over and over. We were so cold and so tired. As the sky started to lighten after that long night, rumors spread that the ship was not heading to Christmas Island, but back to Indonesia where we had come from. The Australian authorities, we heard, were not allowing us to land within the boundaries of Australia. Instead, they commanded Captain Renan to return the people he rescued to Indonesia. Everyone was angry. We had finally came so close to the border of a western country, away from Afghanistan's wars, away from the poverty and living illegally in Pakistan and Indonesia. Most of us had made so many attempts to lead a different life in a better place. We were exhausted from trying. Although the crew had brought us food the night before, 
The people said they were going to go on a hunger strike if the captain did not turn around. Five men went up to the bridge of the ship and talked to him, begging him to return us to Christmas Island. Some people even sewed their lips shut and threatened to jump into the water if they were made to return to Indonesia. Captain Renan, who was on his last voyage after decades of captaining freight ships, agreed to turn ship around and head for a Christmas island inside Australian territory. We were all so relieved, but of course, our joy was short-lived. A few hours later, the ship suddenly stopped its engines. An Australian Navy freighter with visible guns and weapons of every kind pulled alongside the Tampa. The captain was ordered to stand down as soldiers marched on board. They circled all 437 of us, pointing guns directly at our heads and scaring the living daylights out of us. No one was allowed to move, speak or do anything. We just sat there on the deck of the ship, being guarded and intimidated hour after hour. We all refused food. Night came again. The soldiers relaxed a little, but their guns were still pointed at us if we tried to do anything. This went on for four days. I can't really tell you how I or any of the others survived. We didn't eat, hardly slept. We prayed, and every once in a while, we would speak quietly to the people around us. It was clear who was in charge, the Australians pointing guns at our heads. And it was clear we were not welcomed in Australian waters. Meanwhile, the mighty temper just sat there, tossing about in Australian waters, but not really going anywhere. In the world outside the temper, there was a huge argument going on between Australia, Norway and the rest of the world. What happened over the next few days is a story that is central to Australian history. The Australian government stands firm on its decision to deny the vessel entry. This was in contravention of clear advice from the Australian government to the Norwegian government and also very clear advice to the master of the motor vessel Tampa that Australia was refusing the right of entry of the vessel into Australian waters. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Tampa was later called the boat that changed everything. Since it was a key reason that the Australian government developed its specific solution, a policy that drew international condemnation, created offshore detention camps for legitimate refugees and helped John Howard, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, to win the 2001 election based on the idea that people claiming asylum are no longer welcomed in Australia. But this story is not about Australian history or politics. It's what happened to me as a 16-year-old as these events played out around me. On the fourth day of the hunger strike aboard Tampa, people started passing out. Some were completely unconscious and needed medical attention. By then, the number of Australian soldiers had decreased and their guns were not pointed at our heads so often. Finally, 
the captain said he would not take us back to Indonesia. It's what everyone wanted, so we finally agreed to eat something. We were all brought a plate of some strange food. None of us knew what it was. But we were so starving and dehydrated that we all ate every last morsel of it. Soon after, we started getting a sore stomach and had to run for the toilet area. They had converted two empty containers into toilets for us to use. One for females and one for males. At first, people would wait in the queue to use the container so that everyone had some privacy. But now, hundreds of people had diarrhea and no one could afford others the luxury of privacy. It was horrible. Dozens of men sharing a single empty room to relieve themselves. And many people not even being able to make it to the container. The whole deck started to stink. Seven days. After our rescue from the sinking Palapa, we were forcefully transferred to the Manura, the Australian Navy ship. A rubber dinghy moved a few people at a time with armed soldiers around us. This time, as I was leaving the temper, I did look back at the ship where we had endured the most horrific waves, cold, terrible nights, and the greatest of fears about being shot by the Australian soldiers. I didn't know that I would see the temper ship again a few years later, at the reunion with Captain Renan in Auckland, New Zealand. Inside the Manura, we were kept in the lowest part of the ship, where it was extremely hot and noisy. We sweated constantly. Soldiers guarded us day and night. Little bits of food were distributed a couple of times a day, just enough to keep us alive, nothing more. Every once in a while, they would give us an apple each. I would lick the skin and take off little bites slowly, making it last for hours. It felt so good to have something to chew on in my mouth. My growing body yearned constantly for food. It was all I could think of. I promised myself that if I were ever to be free on land again, I would buy myself lots and lots of biscuits. My friend Ahmed, who you heard from earlier, was also thinking about food all the time. Maybe it was the combination of boredom and hunger. Here's what he remembers from our time on the Manura. Ah, that was I cannot I cannot forget that situation, because when we get in the Manura, you know uh, that was an army ship. Yeah, we were in the uh, engine room. It was harder than Tampa, you know. <laughs> I was just watching on the you know a small window on that corner. When that window opened to uh, the food coming, just one spoon of rice, one slice of uh, bread. Sometimes you know they gave us one. Uh, Apple, yes, one apple. orange sometimes. That's right. Yeah, that's it. And then I'm um, just when we get the breakfast, you know, one slice of bread and with one spoon of the uh, rice. And then just I was watching, you know, the window when open again, twelve o'clock. Yeah. 
So that was, you know, all my waiting time for the window. I remember, you know, um, the people when you get the uh, orange, some of the people they eat the skin. Yeah, because everything, every every kind of food on that time was very sweet, you know, very, very, very delicious. Because uh, all of us, you know, we've been thinking about the food. When we arrive somewhere, we will get this, this kind of food, this kind of food, this kind of food, you know. Day after day we sweated and sat there praying, being watched and just trying to stay alive. I had never experienced that kind of heat before, even in Pakistan and Indonesia. It was stifling, dirty air, like breathing in the inside of an engine. While we crouched there sweating, something else happened in the world outside the menorah. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. We also have a report now that the, it was a plane that crashed into the Pentagon, and we have a large fire at the Pentagon. The Pentagon is being evacuated. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. For millions of Muslims around the world, that they changed the way we were treated, understood, and how our Muslim countries were dealt with. Although I had fled that kind of prosecution due to my ethnicity, the entire world had almost overnight became a place that now had hateful feelings about not only my ethnicity, but my religion too. Maybe this affected how the Australian soldiers treated us, Maybe not, but I do know that we were treated like animals on that ship. They were rude and never tried speaking to us like humans. The only time they would speak to us was when shouting commands. After a few days, they lit a shower in the small cubicles. Guards would kick the door after two minutes when our time was up. In my 29 days... In the hall of the menorah, I was allowed three showers. It was a horrible feeling of filth and sweat. On the 26th day, a translator came inside the menorah and gave everyone a form to complete. It asked for our names and our country and date of birth. They set up tables at one end of the ship and we had to go and talk to some official-looking people. When it was my turn... I was very hesitant and tired. All I could think of was food. I was too hungry to speak clearly. I sat down in front of a lady and the interpreter. They asked me a few questions, including my birthday. As Muslims, many of us don't really celebrate our day of birth or even know which day we were born. So I just told them the year I was born. The lady said, you're lying about your age. I got upset. My mind started whirring like bees again. I didn't know what to do. I stood up and just wanted to be away from their questions. I wanted food. I walked away from the table. The lady came running after me and held my arm. She calmly took me back to the seat. I then said, I have no intention of lying to you. I just don't know when my birthday is. 
The lady apologized and then said something that would change my life forever. She said, you may be going to New Zealand, okay? But don't tell anyone as it's not yet certain. I said, okay. I should have felt something at that moment. I should have thought, inshallah, I may get to live in a Western country, to live a safe and happy life. But I didn't. I felt nothing. Only hunger. Maybe there was nothing left for me to feel anymore. The next day, we were given permission to go up to the deck of the manurah for an hour under the heavy security. The air was light and the feel of the sun on my skin made me so happy. We were still far out at sea and could see nothing but water and, and the blue sky. It was the 25th of September 2001. At last, most of the 437 refugees were taken to Naro Island, where they were detained and eventually began the long process of applying for refugee status. Me? Along with 32 other teenagers, we were taken directly to the airport. We must have been quite something to see to their western eyes. Our group had been wearing the same clothes since we left our bags on the sinking fishing vessel about 40 days ago. We were barefoot, emaciated, exhausted, unshowered, and more than anything else, hungry. They gave us jandals for our feet and we boarded the small plane. I was so happy when the plane leveled off above the Indian Ocean and they gave us food. We ate quickly and completely. So happy to have a full tummy for a short while. After a couple of hours, and probably after seeing our eager faces, they fed us again. Although the flight only took around six hours, they let us eat three times. But can you believe it? I was still hungry. Once we landed in Auckland, it took all night for the officials to process everything. One by one, we were showered, given new clothes, and then interviewed again. I wasn't worried about anything. There were boxes full of fruit, nuts, chips, and other strange but yummy foods. We ate all night long, not sleeping, just eating and eating and eating. The next morning, I stepped off the bus at the Mangaree Refugee Resettlement Centre in South Auckland. The air was fresh. I hadn't slept all night, but my head was starting to clear. After 40 days at sea, I felt like the waves were still underfoot, even on land. The rocking in my body and my mind continued for a long time. It felt as if the wild ocean was still all around me. It took a few days for me to realize exactly where I was and what was going on. I looked at the rectangular buildings and the basketball court and funny trees everywhere, thinking, this is a great place, but I wonder how long they will let me stay. And then, one day, I suddenly felt really calm. 
I felt like I was in heaven. There were so many nice people around helping all of us. They fed us four meals every day. I had never been anywhere like this before. But I still wondered, would they send me back to Afghanistan? The Mangri Refugee Resettlement Center would be my home for the next 14 months. The other Tampa boys and I were taught how to live and succeed in New Zealand, learning the language, the customs, the food, and the way of life that would eventually become my own. There were so many challenges for me after I left the refugee resettlement center. Even though I had already lived through so much danger and fear, there were still many more difficult times to come. But my journey also made me a very strong person, physically, mentally and emotionally. I never gave up trying to make a better life for myself as a young man in New Zealand. I grabbed the opportunities that were given to me with both hands and turned these opportunities into a beautiful life. With a wonderful wife, a successful business as a chiropractor, my own house, lots of friends and sports. I also became the principal of a weekend school in Christchurch for children to learn the Dari language or Persian. We have over 100 students, many who have never been to the Middle East, but who are keeping their ties to their parents' language through our school. I sometimes wonder if my commitment to education is because I never had a chance myself for a formal education in Afghanistan after primary school. As I said earlier, when I tell my story about coming to New Zealand, there were many times when I wanted to tell you so much more, things that wouldn't fit into this podcast or that were just too complicated to explain. So maybe I'll write a book one day. Anyway, I'm very thankful to Aotearoa New Zealand for the freedom, happiness and certainty that is now a part of my life and feel blessed to call it my home. Namahi, mahana and shakurwa salamat bajit. I would like to thank Ahmed for sharing his experience with me, the Office of Ethnic Communities for funding the project, the lovely staff at Plains FM, Brian E. Lastovica, and Lana Hart for co-writing and producing the podcast. Original music was by Finn Hart Hoffman. And the one and only legendary Stad Dawood Sarfush. I would also like to thank Helen Clark, former Prime Minister of New Zealand, for making the decision to accept we, the Temple Boys, into this beautiful country. And finally, my beautiful wife, Wahida Zahidi, for supporting and encouraging me all the way. You can listen to the other podcasts in this series by downloading from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or from the Plains FM website and the podcast. Search for the series called Getting Here. Thank you all for helping me and being part of my journey in this podcast.